the CTA, and you've got people who are trying to get to work, people who are tired, end of the day, I just want to be in my zone. But it is such a vital service. I've ridden it all my adult life. I just see it as this connection. It's like an artery. David died on car 2970. And because of the blue line I take it, I thought to myself, you know, one day that car will roll up and what are you gonna do? And that happened in March of 2022. I was back to work, start of the work day, and I thought to myself, okay, do you wanna do this? Or are you gonna blow up your day? And I got on. This is a Block Club Chicago podcast. Sheila Henneke's face lights up when she talks about her firstborn son, David. He was born in 1992 and raised in the family's home in Oak Park. Just from the get-go, he was a Leo. He was born roaring. He was just came out kind of full throttle. Even as a you know young child, always exploring, always curious, brilliant mind. Like he took to reading like a duck to water. He went from kindergarten books with two or three words on a page to goosebumps to Harry Potter in like record time. He looked at the world in a different way. So one of my favorite David stories is we were watching The Wizard of Oz when he was little. And you know the scene where Dorothy's about to take off on the yellow brick road and Everybody, the Munchkins, Glinda, everybody, follow the yellow brick road, follow the yellow brick road. And we're sitting there, you know, watching and David turns to me and he said, where does the red road go? Because if you look, there's like the red, right? And I was like, good, good question. He would also do things that were not so enchanting. Like when his first grade teacher told him to sit down because he was being disruptive, he sat down on the table. And when she said, sit down, he said, I am sitting. So I started getting calls <laughs> from an early age. As the years progressed, the Hennekes, both of whom were well-versed in social work, they tried a lot to help David find his way. I was part of the spank generation. I was spank. We, my generation was like, not doing that. We'll do timeout and behavior charts and all that. So we worked with those things. And through middle school, he was doing pretty well. He was on some medication for ADHD. And then come high school, his it just really, he got in, it's a you know classic story, got in with some kids who were breaking the rules. And his first week of high school, he was suspended for tagging. This is in Oak Park River Forest High School. So this is like Oak Park River Forest High School is like the reason why a lot of us moved to Oak Park. And it's like the pinnacle, like, you know, all the kids come there. It's this great shining beacon. And my kid gets suspended the first week because he's graffiti in the bathroom. Suffice to say, high school started off with a bang and kind of ramped up from there. And so he did graduate, but along the way, he started to get into substance use. And it started with abusing his medication that we began to lock up. And then he was able to get things from other people. And I know that David got medicine from cabinets of friends and other places. Sheila remembers a time David came home from a friend's house completely out of it, taking whatever medication was in that friend's house. Sheila's story, you're going to hear later, eventually turns to one of advocacy for getting Narcan, which is an opioid overdose reversal drug, in public places. 
But it's these nights of David coming home from friends' houses that really sticks with her. And it's why part of her mission is for parents to start having Narcan in every single home, even if you couldn't even possibly think that someone might OD there one day. Uh, But we'll have more of that in a bit. Back to David's story. We got David into treatment right before his senior year of high school. He did graduate, but he continued to struggle with substance use, and we realized the full scope of it. He was abusing heroin, which was a word I couldn't even say when I first heard this. David said he got it at the McDonald's on Harlem. I was, you know, so I had, there was a whole like realization phase, and then we kicked into high gear and threw everything we could at the addiction. Dave was in rehab over a dozen times. He started community college at Triton. He had a couple great years there. He studied to be a paramedic and then he just couldn't, the drugs would undercut that. And he was a nice person throughout. He was never mean, vindictive. We had him leave our home when he was about 20, 23, 24, because we just could no longer live with the chaos. You know, we'd come home from work, my husband and I, and the front door might be wide open, or the oven would be on with a pizza burning, and Dave would be passed out. And we just, you know, we, we love you, but we cannot live like this. So I took David to Pacific Garden Mission and said, you know, if you do not enter treatment, because we didn't want to just kick him out. We said, if you go into treatment, that's fine. But if you're not in treatment, you cannot live with us. And we literally took a tour of Pacific Garden Mission and we heard all about their program. And so at least we knew if we were going to have him leave our home, he had a place to go. He stayed there one night and then was out in the communities. Wherever he was, we'd meet him. If it was freezing outside, he was always, we could always have him stay overnight. You know, we didn't ever want him to be at that level of risk. But it was like a lot of families with people who are using You want to love them and you want to regulate because you have to have your own boundaries. If you're going to be around to love and support them, you have to have some limit. At the same time, we learned a lot about substance use disorder and went through all the phases of tough love and realizing that for Dave and for a lot of people, there's no hitting bottom. I've heard the term people live at the bottom. And we were always hoping for that miracle. Dave, it just never... It never did. We had just signed a lease on an apartment in Oak Park. For him, we had realized that he may never stop using, but we wanted to keep him safe. And two weeks after he moved in, he was found on the blue line, unresponsive. David died in November of 2021. Since then, Sheila, she's been on a mission to educate the public on the life-saving potential of Narcan and trying to get it into places where overdoses are common. Block Club Chicago reporter Mac Lederman wrote the story that led us to Sheila. Mac, she really is an inspiration. Yeah, John, I mean, um, throughout this job, uh, sometimes there's kind of the journalist source boundary and, you know, I don't usually give sources hugs, but when I met her by the Narcan vending machine um, and she put her arms out for a hug, I couldn't help but uh, say yes to that one. I just found it really inspiring and through this job, especially being a reporter in Chicago, you very often have to talk to people in the lowest times of their life when they're dealing with the death of a child or somewhere else. And, you know, a lot of people sometimes um they want to be private during those times. And that's very, very fair, more than fair, you might say. But 
I'm also always inspired by the few and far in between who want to take their grief and turn it into some sort of productive step forward, who want to raise their voices and be voices on issues. And I think Sheila is a very necessary voice in this conversation we're having about the opioid crisis, you know, not only in Chicago, but across the, the country and the world. You met her talking about Narcan vending machines coming to a CTA station. Well, first of all, what is Narcan? Narcan is an overdose reversing medication um, that can use to, you know, help people who are overdosing in the moment. It can pretty much be administered like anybody. Um, I know one example Sheila likes to use is comparing it to CPR is um, any average Joe can do CPR if they know how. Um, Narcan, anyone can administer Narcan just as a nasal stray. Um, if you use Narcan on someone who doesn't need it, there's no effects to it. So it really is a breakthrough technology. And um, kind of the tragic part of the opioid crisis, John, is that we've, you know, flooded our streets with fentanyl, um, these types of very painful and aggressive opioids. And all we have left to fix it is these little cans of Narcan spray that now have flooded the market right behind it. So the goal of a lot of advocates now is to make Narcan as not only as widely available as possible, but as socially accessible as possible. So Someone not just like Sheila might have a pouch of Narcan on their backpacks when they're going to work. I want to just sit on this point about comparing it to CPR a little bit, because for me, the idea of taking and saving someone from an overdose seems so foreign and crazy mm -hmm. and Superman-like that doesn't seem accessible to me. But I imagine when they rolled out CPR, that seemed insane to people. And while that still would be, of course, a harrowing moment, I feel like, though I haven't had to do it myself that I think I could give it a shot yeah. if I needed to. And I imagine that that's the same way I imagine that's what they're trying to do with Narcan is almost make it first aid, not some foreign concept. It doesn't matter how old you are. You know, you can use this on someone who's 90. You can use it on someone who's nine months. I mean, it, you just a pregnant person. It could, you know, literally save a life. You always want to have paramedic help afterwards. This isn't by itself enough. The protocols, you check someone is not responsive, not breathing, call 911, administer the Narcan, wait till 911 because opioids remain in your system. So they're not out of the woods. Also, some people who are using may want to go out and use again. So if you at least can help them get some medical, you extend that window of them maybe realizing they just almost died. There's kind of a greater barrier though, however, about getting that acceptance for Narcan just because of the stigma around drug users in general and that you know really dates back to the war on drugs and the idea that we need to take drug users and lock them up we need to you know make sure make sure drug users um, are off our streets and out of the eyes of the public uh, there's still this very large stigma around people who use drugs the types of people we think of in our heads when we think about the people who use drugs that um i think a lot of these advocates are having a hard time getting people to wrap their heads around that you know they can save someone who is overdosing um you know someone who's overdosing is it could be anyone it could be someone who looks like Sheila Sun. so what is this vending machine at 95th street at the red line station like what's happening here so um this is a part of a pilot program by the chicago department of public health to roll out narcan as far as wide as possible in the city or at least that's what they're saying and it started around last year uh, when department added narcan boxes uh, to all 81 public libraries and they trained over 300 librarians to administer it so another hot spot um of overdosing and uh, just drug use can be you know public restrooms um so they put narcan throughout all there and this is kind of the 
The next step, um, I know Sheila, after the death of her son, um, had joined the Westside Opioid and Heroin Task Force and had been advocating for Narcan on public transit. And so far, this is the result of it. So there are five public health vending machines is the official name of it. Inside these machines, um, they have, of course, Narcan, drug, drug testing strips for people who want to check their drugs for fentanyl or other things before they take them, um, hygiene products, and all these things kind of fall under what advocates call harm reduction. So the understanding that contrary to how we looked at drug use during the war on drugs, that drug use in public on our systems in our city is inevitable. And these are people who are struggling more with a disease than an addiction that they can easily turn on and off. So given these realities, we need to give these people the, the tool to reduce the harm they can face from using these drugs. So they don't have to die when they take these drugs. They can minister Narcan or have someone near them minister Narcan, they can test their drugs before they take them. So these vending machines, um, it's uh, as she likes to call it, is a sign of life giving. Um, anyone can access them um, through uh, a pin, one, two, three, four for the Narcan. But uh, for the other products, the city would like people to scan a, gar a barcode and kind of use more of a unique pin and, and complete a survey first so they can collect data on exactly who is using these supplies and how they can possibly grow the network of vending machines from here. I don't want to minimize the impact of the vending machines themselves, but I mentioned if nothing else, <laughs> seeing a vending machine could start a conversation, could lead to someone saying, you know, maybe I should have one of these in my purse. There's a symbolic significance to this, John. Um, I, You know, as Sheila was saying, as I watched her, as she saw the Narcan vending machine for the first time and tried to vend something at 95th Street, Um, she said, you know, the importance of this is one, it's a precedent that we need these types of things in public spaces where they're happening. And two, it's um, a sign to all those who walk by and, you know, they can say, and this we can say as a city, you know, we see you, um, we support you, we understand what you're going through. Most people will not want to touch a stranger. You know, we're socialized to keep our hands to, especially on the CTA, because, you know, you don't want to start anything. But for people who feel called to do that, this is a, something they can do. For people who are just aware and they see somebody fall over on a train and say, gee, do you think that's an over opioid? Does someone have Narcan? You know, someone might speak up. A lot of people won't, but they'll be aware. And I really, my one of my arguments to the CTA was, this sends a message of compassion and care amongst riders. You know, we all know the problem rider who's making everyone uncomfortable, but, you know, riding on a train is a communal experience and we can, it doesn't take a lot just to show some care and concern. I've been on many rides where something goes down and people are looking at each other and there's like this sort of camaraderie, everything from the train breaks down, you got to get on one of those dreaded shuttles to somebody like really acting up and wreaking havoc. So why not empower people? It's also a sign that, you know, as the public health director told me that um, this is an essential city service now. Having this Narcan available is necessary given uh, 2,000 deaths in Cook County alone from this last year, John. And um, a stat that really stuck with me is that there's now more deaths or overdoses in Cook County than there are for car crashes and homicides combined. It's a precedent, but, you know, as Sheila and other advocates hopes, it's not a show of face that you, the CTA will move forward and they will create access um, everywhere on the system as opposed to uh, one location because, you know, dr drug use is happening throughout the transit system and not just our transit system, but throughout our city. Sheila is one of dozens of mothers who have lost sons or daughters to overdoses on trains in our city. Yeah, I mean, um, David is her son, David. 
one of over the 120 people who died of overdoses on the CTA since the pandemic. And uh, last year, there was double the amount of deaths. So 60 deaths on public transit, um, which kind of mirrors the jump we've seen in overdose deaths around the city. And there's something about these that just feel particularly preventable, given that, you know, there's riders, there's other operators, there's always eyes and ears and other people on our transit system. We're not replacing paramedics. We're not like, you know, vigilante doctors or anything. No, this is a first aid method. It's legal, it's safe, and it works so quickly. I administered it on someone. I was walking up LaSalle Street and there was a man on the ground and there was a security guard. And I said, did you see him go down? And he said, yeah. And I, he had called 911. I said, great. And I tried to rouse him nothing. So I used Narcan. And at the time the paramedics arrived, the guy woke up because it takes like two to two to three minutes to work. The real takeaway for me from that experience was one, how scary it is to reach out and touch somebody that you don't know. You want to be mindful that you're, you're doing something really out of the ordinary. And so you want to know what you're doing. And I had been had training in Narcan, but people around me saw and they watched and I thought there was a benefit to just that awareness. And it was the security guard afterwards. He said, you didn't have to do that. I said, no, but my son died of an overdose at which point he gave me a big hug. <laughs> it, was this, it was one of those great moments, you know, in the city where, you know, total stranger, you have this encounter at the beginning of your work day. And it was just like, some days I really like being a human being. It's just, you know, you make a connection. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Start of the work day, and I thought to myself, okay, <laughs> do you want to do this? Or are you going to blow up your day if you, and I got on. And it was weird because I thought, oh my goodness, you know, and I sat in the area that I was pretty sure they said he was in the back of the train, you know, there's that corner where people often hide out. And I thought, okay, maybe here. And I sat, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, will I feel his presence? What? And then I looked around and there was a transom window open in March, which it never is. And I thought, he's not here. You know, his spirit, and especially the way David was, Mr. Skateboarding, thrill-seeking, I want to get to the roof of the building and look over. He didn't stick around. He, he soared. And so it was actually very healing to sit there and say, he's not here. I can be in this space, be in the stream. Remember him. This is where your loved one met God. And it was just such a different way to think of it. And so that that's what I hold with me. So when I hear the train now, I still am sad. You know, it still reminds me. But this cause gives me something to have some hope about because there was so much good in our community and all of it, in the CTA and everybody. And that's what I'm choosing to look at because, yeah, you just have to, I think that's what living with David taught us too, is that you live with, sadness and pain, but it doesn't mean life is not good. You can, life can be good and still be hard. Life can be good and still be really sad. This was a Block Club Chicago podcast. We'll drop another one on you soon. <laughs>